What we had scheduled to do was to take a break in this summer season from our preaching series through Colossians. And what we wanted to do was start a summer series that we're calling Seven Mile Road Mixtape. And I'll tell you more about that next week and give you all the details on our website and blog this week, and it'll launch next week. And then what we're going to do is pick up Colossians again in the fall with the bottom portion of chapter 2, and then work through the fall till we finish the book of Colossians. What we wanted to do then this week was to take this week to consider how we might think and live and respond to the Supreme Court of the United States decision regarding same-sex marriage. Now, I need to say right at the top, whether you agree with what I will say or disagree with what I would say, I need to plead and beg with you for your hearing. Right? A mature conversation is one where we can disagree civilly with one another. And so I'd plead with you to let me get to the end. And then I would be glad to go with you to lunch as long as you're paying and talk with you about whatever questions you might have. And we can dialogue through this. The other thing I want to say is that if you're here, you know this. But if you're not, I want you to know that our general pattern when it comes to uh, preaching and our calendar of preaching is not to follow news headlines or whatever is culturally relevant or hot topic at the time, and so bouncing from one cultural issue to the next. Our general pattern, if you've been here, is to open books of the Bible and preach verse by verse and chapter by chapter through it. However, since our call as Christians is not to hide and insulate ourselves from the world, or to stand aback and lob grenades of condemnation at the world, nor is it to blindly and mindlessly follow the ways of the world, but rather Jesus' call to Christians and to his church is to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. That is to be in the world without being of the world, and so we thought it would be helpful for us together to look to God's word. Now I want to say also up front that we will leave a many things left unsaid, right? There, I suspect, will probably be more questions that are raised than answers that are given, and I know that will be the case. I'm going to tell you what no preacher should probably ever say at the beginning of the sermon. I think the sermon's going to be long today. And, and even with that, I won't nearly say all that needs to be said. So frankly, there just isn't enough time to say it. We could be here for a week talking through this. And second, frankly, I'm not even sure that we're smart enough to answer all the questions that may come. So we want to be upfront about that. Having said that, we do want to give you every opportunity to ask every question that you may have. To that end, on the screen, you'll see that there's a number that you can text in anonymously questions. So as you're listening to the sermon, if there are questions that brew in your mind, as you're going through this day, at any point, if you've got a question concerning this topic that you want to text in anonymously, we will do our best to find an appropriate forum to answer any question you might have. Whether that be on the blog this week or whether that be hosting a night where we can discuss these things, we want Want to give that opportunity to you. We do also want to point out to you that there are a number of resources that are and will be available for you. So for example, one that I'm very excited about is our own Brett, Brett LaPrade, is writing a, a series of articles that we want to just publish and distribute to the folks who are interested in this church. And what he's trying to do is just answer all the sort of burning questions, all the common questions even, that come up with what does the Bible say about homosexuality? And how should a Christian think about it? And how should we as, as citizens of Jesus' kingdom engage it and consider it? And so uh, we want to make that available to you. 
Additionally, there is a conference on July 29th with a number of evangelical leaders that are sort of weighing in this. And it's going to be live streamed so that it will be available at your computers at home. We'll also be showing it at the church regarding this issue of same-sex marriage so that if you would like to watch it together and dialogue and discuss it, that will be available to you on July 29th. And needless to say, there are also numerous books we could point you to and countless articles we could point you to. Two that I would commend to you are books that I read even just this week. One is a book called What Does the Bible Really Say About Homosexuality by a pastor named Kevin DeYoung. Another is a book called Is God Anti-Gay by a pastor named Sam Albury. Both short, easily accessible, readable, very understandable books that I would commend you to as well. So... Having said all that, we want to consider this together. And so what I want to do is I want to ask you to pray with me. I'll pray out loud. You pray in your hearts, both for my mouth and your ears, and then we'll jump into this together. Let's pray. Our Father, we come to you now, and we thank you that you have not left us in the dark to grope about and figure life out, but that you have revealed to us you yourself through your word. And you have given us the word which is a light unto our path and a lamp unto our feet so that we might know how to walk. We might know how to live. We pray, O Lord, that even now that you would help, Holy Spirit, you who inspired your word would be with my mouth so that it would say all that you want me to say and nothing that I ought not to say, that you might shape both what I say and how I say it. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be with your people's ears. We pray that you would protect us from the evil one who you have told us, Jesus, loves to come like a bird snatches seed before it can hit the soil, loves to come and pluck out your word before it can take root. So protect us. And we pray over and above all the noise and all the sermons we have heard from all the culture about us, your word, which is living and active, would be proclaimed to us louder than anything else. We pray that you would give us open hearts, open minds, and an open Bible to consider what you might have us to say, and to think and to believe. And so come shape the way that we speak today, shape the way that we think today, and most importantly of all, shape the way that we act and live in response today. This we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, to be honest, it's it's hard to know where to even jump into the conversation. It's hard to know where to even begin. Do you begin by debating sort of marriage? Do you begin by a conversation about gender or sexuality? Do you begin by talking analogously or or illustratively about bakeries and wedding cakes? Do you talk about uh, rulings and court rulings and Supreme Court rulings? Do you talk about religious liberties? Do you talk about the conversation that conservatives are having or liberals are having? Do you talk about the First Amendment and how it's pitted against the 14th Amendment? Needless to say, amidst all of that, all of your Facebook walls and Twitter feeds are bombarded constantly with endless opinions of how you should think through this and perfectly worded 140 characters that summarize the whole issue and just perfectly in a pithy statement tell you what you should think. What I'm getting at is that there is no shortage of noise about this whole thing. And sometimes when there is so much noise, it's hard to remember that at the end of the day, this isn't even really an issue to be right about or to be one. This is about people. This is about people we know. This is about people we love. This is about fathers and mothers and sons and daughters and brothers and sisters and cousins and nephews. 
This is about friends and coworkers. This is about people who are in your wedding party. These are lifelong friends. These are about people. And so the question is almost sort of where do you begin? Well, what I want to suggest is that where we should start is at the start. And where we should begin is at the beginning. You heard Pastor Binu read for us Genesis chapter 1. And, and I, wanna, I want you to hear that the reason I think we should start at the start and begin at the beginning is because that's what Jesus did when he was asked about marriage. I think it'll be encouraging for you to know that marriage was just as much a hot topic in Jesus' day as it is now in our day. It's just that the questions about it were different. They were wrestling just as much as we are today with the nature of marriage in Jesus' day. And when he was asked about it, he went to the beginning. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 19, first book of the New Testament, Jesus is asked about the nature of marriage. And what happens is there's a group of Pharisees, and they are the religious leaders and elite of their day. They're the ones who know the scriptures backwards and forwards like the back of their hand. And they don't particularly like Jesus. And everywhere they can, they're trying to set a trap for Jesus. And so the hot-button issue of their day was sort of, what is the nature of marriage? Except, unlike our question, their question was about divorce. And the teaching of that day that was growing in popularity was that you could get divorced for any reason. And so, for example, there were Jewish rabbis that were teaching that if your wife burns the food, you could divorce her. So burnt toast for breakfast was enough reason to divorce your wife. And so with that being sort of the cultural understanding, there was a question about what is marriage. And so they came to Jesus. And chapter 19 of Matthew's gospel, verse 3, says this. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You'll notice what they're doing is they're testing Jesus. And so what they figure is they've got the perfect trap for Jesus. Perfect trap. Because if he says, yes, you can divorce your wife, then they've got him. Oh, Jesus, you're soft on the law. You're soft on sin. You're soft on what Moses commanded. You're soft on what God requires. We got you, Jesus. Now, on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, they can't get divorced for any reason, then they've got him and they go, oh, Jesus, you are so out of touch and so distant and out of step with how people are thinking today and, and interpreting the scriptures today. And so, yes or no, they got Jesus. One pastor has helpfully said, whenever you think you have Jesus in an intellectual headlock, you should watch out because not only is he about to reverse that, he's about to put you in one. And so then what he says in verse 4 of Matthew 19 is he answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, and he quotes now Genesis 1, made them male and female and said, and now he quotes Genesis 2:24. therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They ask him about the nature of marriage and Jesus replies by saying, have you not read? And he quotes Genesis 1 and then Genesis 2, verse 24. Now, one pastor, I think, helpfully has said, I think what Jesus is doing is sort of poking fun at the Pharisees, right? They ask him about marriage, and Jesus says, listen, have you read, and, and, and remember who the Pharisees are. The Pharisees are people who didn't just read the Bible, didn't just study the Bible. They knew the Bible by heart. Those passages in the Old Testament that you just breeze over, because who's going to read that stuff, they memorized 
So, so they didn't just read and study. They memorized large sections of the Old Testament. And Jesus' response is, listen, in all your study, did you get as far as maybe, I don't know, Genesis 1? Did you get as far in your study as, I don't know, page 1 or page 2? Have you read what God said in the beginning when he created them male and female and then connecting it in verse 24 of chapter 2 to marriage? And so what, what I want to say then is that's what we want to do today. We want to follow in Jesus' footsteps and answer the question as he did by considering what God was getting at in the beginning. When Jesus was asked about the nature of marriage and how to think about it amidst the cultural questions of his day, he pointed back to what God was getting at with marriage in the beginning, and we want to do the same thing. We want to consider together, why did God make marriage, and what is it, and what was God getting at when he made it? So you heard Genesis 1. It begins this way, in the beginning, God. And it's worth pausing and lingering for just a second to say, in the beginning, God. As in not you, as in not me, as in not our cultural moment, as in not human thought or laws or dictates, in the beginning, God. God first. God before everything and anything. In fact, this is what we read together in Colossians. For by him, Jesus Christ, were all things made, and through him, and for him. He is before all things. Colossians, he is the firstborn over all creation. That is, he is preeminent and supreme and prominent over and above all things. In the beginning, God, and then created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And heavens and earth is a way of saying he made everything. It's a way of summarizing he made everything. Right? So if I said from your head to your toe, I've only listed two parts of your body, but you know that I mean everything. I mean your hands and, and your organs and your feet and all of it. From your head to toe, listed two things, but it covers it all. When God created the heavens and the earth, it's, it's saying he made everything that has been made. And now it zooms in on creation. Verse 2, the earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And here's what happens. As creation gets started, the description is it's without form and it's void. Now, scholars and commentators tell us that what that language is, it's the language of sort of chaos. It's the language of no order. It's the language of everything was muddied and muddled together, undifferentiated, indistinct. It was sort of just this blah. And watch what God does as he begins to create. And here, friends, is what I need you to lock into, and I can't have you miss. What God does with this formless, void, undifferentiated, indistinct, muddied and muddled together blah, is he begins to draw distinctions. He begins to separate he begins to differentiate, and he begins to form these complementary pairs that fit together. What he begins to do is he, he begins to shape things so that this isn't that, and that isn't this, and these sort of differentiated, separated, distinct things become these complementary pairs that work together. For example, verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And what does God do? And God separated the light from the darkness. Do you see that? Do you feel that? 
He's making this thing light, and what he does is he now, from this earth that is formless and void and muddied and muddled together, he, in his act of creation, now begins to draw distinctions and separate so that now there is light and there is darkness. And this is not that, and that is not this, and this is good. And that's what he begins to do. And as you keep going throughout chapter 1, you keep seeing that over and over again. Because in the next scene, he builds earth and sky. And he differentiates so that there is now earth below and sky above. You've got these distinct, different, separate, but complementary pairs that fit together. And then you keep reading. And what do you see? He makes land and he makes sea. He makes the sun and he makes the moon, the sun to rule by day, the moon to rule by night. He makes planet, I mean plants, and then he makes animals. And over all of this, he pronounces it's good. Do you see that? He, he makes heaven and earth and earth and sky and land and sea and plants and animal and night and day and light and darkness and sun and moon. And over all of that, he pronounces it's good. And of the culmination and climax and pinnacle and zenith of all that creation is in 26. Because now he's going to make human beings. And what does it say in 26? Then God said, let us make man, and man there is generic, as in mankind, humanity, human beings. Let us make human beings. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Then verse 27 so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So at the height, at the zenith, at the apex, at the pinnacle and culmination of his creation, what does God do? He makes human beings in his own image, and he draws a distinction between the human beings. He differentiates. He separates. He makes two distinct, a male and a female. And he says, this is not that, and that is not this, and this is very good. Very good. Now, why did God do that? Why did God draw distinctions into his creation supremely as revealed in that first pair, in that first couple? Why did he draw distinctions in their bodies, in their sexual identity? Why is it that land can't be sea and sea can't be land? And day can't be night no matter how it feels and night can't be day and earth can't be sky, and sky can't be earth, and male can't be female, and female can't be male. Why, why is it that that runs actually counter to everything that God was getting at in creation? Do you, do you remember that to confuse that, to muddy that, to muddle that, to make that undistinct and no different was to go backwards before God started? Do you remember that everything started as this muddied, muddled, undifferentiated, indistinct blah? And it was from that that God drew distinction. So then to call this or that and to remove those distinctions would actually be counter what God was getting at in creation. Why is it that God draws these distinctions particularly in those who were created male and female? Well, he tells us. 
In verse 27, it said that God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So what Genesis is saying is that God made human beings with their distinct sexual identity in order to reflect something about him. In order to reflect his image. Sort of like when you look in a mirror and you see your image, God made human beings distinct the way that he did, male and female, so that we would reflect what God is like, his nature, he, who he is in the world. We would display what God is like. And, and if you remember what Jesus does in Matthew 19, when he was asked about marriage, Jesus seamlessly connects Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. Without taking a breath, he says, therefore God made the male and female and seamlessly connects that to, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall no longer be two but become one flesh. So Jesus in one breath says, because you've got these distinct separated genders, this male and this female, now you've got this thing called marriage. Because you have this, you have now marriage, and Jesus quotes Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And so, what Genesis 1 and 2 is getting at, and what Jesus in Matthew 19 is getting at, is that there is something about these two distinct, gendered, differentiated human beings, man and woman, coming together as one, which is what marriage by Jesus' definition is. And somehow, all of that, exists because it's telling us something about what God is like and what his nature is. God made this this way and marriage this way so that it might give God's image and nature into the world. He made them in his image this way. Now, the question, if you're following with me, is how? How does this distinction and how does marriage, these, these distinct, this man and this woman coming together, display God, tell you what God is like, show forth in the world what his nature is. In Genesis 2 verse 24, the, the verse that Jesus quotes, therefore for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one. One. The word there that's used, and I'm no language scholar, is this Hebrew word echad. And, and, and what it's saying is, for this reason, a man and a wife come together and they are now echad. And echad is not just this mathematical idea. It's this idea of unity. It's these two distinct persons that are now echad. They are one. They are one in nature. They are unity in diversity. In diversity, they are unity. And it's this idea of these separate persons who now are one. Well, another place you see achad is Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And Deuteronomy 6, verse 4 is the most famous creed of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 6, 4, verse 4, we said a creed together. Well, what Israel would have said was Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. And what they would have said is, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. That's what it would have said all the time. The Lord our God, the Lord is achad. And what were they getting at? It wasn't just this mathematical idea that there's one God instead of seven. It's that this God is one in nature. There's a unity about him. And as you keep reading the scriptures, what do we know about God? We know that God is Father and Son 
and Holy Spirit, that he is three distinct, separated, different persons who are echad. Three distinct persons, separate. One is not the other. This is not that. That is not this. And yet, achad. This is what the scriptures teach that God is. And so, Sevmar wrote, marriage exists. It was created by God to express and reflect the unity in diversity of the Trinity. That is why marriage is the way that it is. And I need you to hear this. Any understanding about the nature of God that ran counter to that. For example, there have been movements throughout the history of humanity that has tried to say, no, 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 God is not three distinct persons. God is just one. He's the same. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are the same. The church has responded to that by saying that's a heresy. And the heresy of same-sex marriage is that it fails to express what marriage was created to express in that it fails to express what God is like. Even as the heresy of the Trinity would have been to flatten out the distinctions and to say it doesn't matter that God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, that they're just the same, that was cried out as a heresy because it's not true about God. And so same-sex marriage is not true about what God is like. The heresy of same-sex marriage is it doesn't portray the nature of God. Marriage was created by this God to express what God is like. And this purpose, and I need you to hear this, of marriage, to reflect the truth about God, is not just in the beginning of the Bible. I want you to know it runs all the way till the end of the Bible as well. So, for example, if you go to a Christian wedding, you're likely to hear a pastor say something like, the Bible begins with a wedding and the Bible ends with a wedding. And that's true. Because just like there is Genesis 1 and 2, and in Genesis 1 and 2, it's about the heavens and the earth and a marriage. Well, when you get to the end of the Bible, you've got Revelations 21 and 22. And guess what Revelation 21 and 22 is about? But the new heavens and the new earth and a marriage. And so from beginning to end, the Bible has this one message about this, that what God was doing in the beginning was a preview and a trailer for what God would do at the end. That if there's heavens and earth and marriage in Genesis 1 and 2, then there's heavens and new earth and new marriage in Revelation 21 and 22. And here's the picture at the end of the Bible. At the end of the Bible is the picture of this new heavens and this new earth, and they come together. This distinct, separate thing, the new heavens and the new earth, they come together. And I need you to hear that. For example, if you think after a Christian dies, we fly off into heaven and we live in the clouds forever, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that in the end, there will be a fusion, a uniting of the new heavens and the new earth. This distinct complementary pair that's going to come together. And all of that is still even pointing to an even more ultimate truth, which is that the marriage in Revelation 22 and 21 is that finally Jesus, the bride, will be married to his people, the church. That is what the Bible says marriage was getting at all along. In fact, in Ephesians 5, it'll say this is the mystery that we didn't know about when we were just reading Genesis. But now in light of Jesus, we do know that what this is all pointing to 
is to the ultimate distinct, differentiated, complementary pair. The ultimate distinct, differentiated, complementary pair, which is God and man, which is sinners and their sinless savior, which is creation and its creator, and that finally they are united. Now hear me. Colossians, we've been working through it. It said everything was made by Jesus and everything was made for Jesus. And so marriage ultimately exists for Jesus. Marriage exists to tell the story as a preview and trailer for that union between the most distinct and ultimately separated pair, but complementary together, Jesus and his people. Because it's not then Jesus and Jesus, or the church and the church, same-sex marriage can never tell the full story of what God was getting at in marriage. Now, I need you to hear me clearly. Because if you're here, and even if you disagree, if your every understanding of what a Christian thinks is something you get from what you see on the TVs or what you read in the, on the internet, I need you to hear from a living, breathing Christian. I need you to hear me say very clearly that a Christian is not saying that a same-sex couple can't be committed, can't be loving, can't be monogamous, can't have lifelong monogamous relationship. It's, a, a Christian is not saying that there is only what's condemnable in a same-sex couple and only what is commendable in a heterosexual couple, but rather often the opposite can be true, that there are plenty of heterosexual marriages that are broken and a total mess, and there are plenty of same-sex couples that are loving and committed and faithful. A Christian is encountering any of that. But what a Christian is saying is that same-sex marriage, even at its best, can never reflect the nature of God or be a preview to the story that the Bible is telling about God. Even at its best, a same-sex marriage can never be what God intended marriage to be, what he intended it to show forth, what he intended it to display, because ultimately marriage isn't even even in a heterosexual couple, about two people who just love one another, everything was made by Jesus and for Jesus. Everything exists for him. Now hear me. If I stop there, I will stop woefully short of what the Bible wants to say. Because the central message of the Bible is not about homosexuality. You should know that. It's not about same-sex marriage. It's been rightly pointed out that there are but just a few, maybe a dozen references to homosexuality in the whole Bible. And now, now you be clear and sure that those references are crystal clear in what it teaches. But in the fact that there are just a dozen in that whole book tells you that what the Bible is definitely not about is homosexuality. It's not the central issue of the scriptures. What the Bible is about is Jesus Christ. And so you can't doze off now. You've got to let me tell you about Jesus. You have to let me tell you about Jesus. Because what the Bible is about is the Son of God who came into this world for broken sinners of every kind and every stripe so that we might be made whole. And this 
Bible that we cling to is ultimately about Jesus. And when Jesus came into the world, he had a very simple message. I listened to this wonderful talk by this pastor named Sam Alberry. He sort of becomes sort of a small hero of mine in just hearing his talk. He's a pastor in the UK. And Sam Albury, when he was around a teenager going through puberty, noticed that he had same-sex attraction. He didn't ask for it. He wasn't looking for it. It wasn't some conscious choice he made. He didn't come from bad, unloving parents. He was in a great home, and he just noticed something about him that he was attracted to young men rather than to young women. And at the same time that that was something that he was beginning to discover, he was discovering Jesus as well. And so these two sort of parts of his life collided together. Now, Sam Albury is now a, a 30-something-year-old pastor, and those attractions haven't left. They haven't changed. And so what he's done is he has made himself, as, as Jesus taught, a eunuch. He's, he's celibate because of what he believes God teaches in the scriptures about the Bible. And hearing him teach on homosexuality had an authority that's very different than a guy married with two kids. It was really powerful to hear him. And in his talk, one of the simple things he wonderfully reminded me is that when Jesus came to the earth, he had one simple message. If you read Mark 1, verse 15, Jesus sort of arrives onto the scene. This is his opening address in the Gospel of Mark. He's sort of coming out into ministry. This is his inaugural address. And here's what he says. The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. This is what Jesus came out saying. This was his message. The, the time, meaning everything that human history had been moving for is here because I'm here. The kingdom of God is at hand, so here's what I need you to do. Humanity, repent and believe the gospel. All human beings, here's my message. Repent. Uh, repent, that is that word that literally means turning around. Turning around in the way that your mind was thinking about something, in the way that your life was going about something, repent. Right? So, for example, if, if you've ever taken a wrong turn into a, a one-way street, have you ever done that? I've done that several times because I'm terrible at driving. Uh, you take that, that left into a one-way street and suddenly you see cars coming at you and you realize you're going the wrong way. Or, or Roosevelt Boulevard and the 12 lanes, and you got to take that left, and you have no idea which lane. And so you go, and it's not till there is 40 cars coming at you that you go, oh my goodness. And now whatever it takes, you are going to find a way to do what? To turn around. That's what Jesus said. Humanity, God is coming at you, and you are going in the wrong direction. You must turn around. And, and when you think of that, that is a very unflattering message for all human beings. Because what Jesus is saying is, all human beings are lined up wrong. All human beings are going in the wrong direction. All human beings are broken in their orientation. No one is lined up the way that God wanted you to be. And so every single person has to turn. Sam Albury in this wonderful, simple way said, that means none of us are straight. All of us are crooked. All of us are broken and drawn to and oriented to things we ought not be. And all of us are required to recognize we're going the wrong way and turn. Repent, Jesus says. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. I'm here. All human beings now must repent, must turn around. 
And, and what that means intrinsically in that then is that following Jesus is going to cost you. Intrinsically means you can't keep going and doing what you did. Following Jesus means now it's going to cost you something. And Jesus was very upfront about that. Jesus didn't sort of bury the cost of following him in sort of the fine print so nobody would see it. Jesus was very upfront about saying, if anyone should come after me, he must take up his cross and deny himself and follow me. Not buried in the small print. Would you hear me? If anyone's going to come after me, he must take up his cross, deny himself, and follow me. Now, what we Christians tend to do is we tend to domesticate that verse so that it's safe. We tame it so that it won't bite. We sand down all the sharp edges so that it won't really cut us. And we take, take up your cross and deny yourself to mean, all right, I got to give up a little bit here and a little bit there. Would you consider what Jesus was saying to a crowd that would have known exactly what he was saying? Not 2,000 years removed like us. If you took up your cross, it meant that you were under the sentence of Roman execution. You were going to die. You didn't take up the cross as a hobby. If you took up the cross, in fact, the moment you put the cross on your back, you had no more rights. And anyone and everyone could do whatever they wanted to do to you. I mean, there's historians that say that people who took up the cross were so mistreated that actually finally getting to the cross was a relief. You, you abandoned your sense of you. You gave up everything you thought you had a right and entitlement to when you took up a cross. And Jesus is saying, if you're going to follow me, it will mean the end of you. It will mean you die to yourself, deny yourself, and follow me. Sam Alberry, the pastor that I mentioned, he said that when people sort of hear their st his story, they often come to him. And very well-meaning and very sympathetic, they go, Sam, the gospel must be so hard for you. Because you have to deny so much of yourself. And, and he says that his always response, and this is not mine, but this is Sam Albury's response, is, friend, if you think that the gospel somehow slots neatly into your life and hasn't caused yet upheaval and disturbance to who you are, I don't think you've yet received the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not that, that the gospel calls so much from me and sort of marginal from you. Friend, if the gospel has not meant the end of you, and upheaved and disturbed everything about you, what you thought your life should be and what you were entitled to, you may not have yet received the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the call to all of us, broken sinners of every kind and stripe, is to follow Jesus means that we take up our cross and we deny ourselves and we follow him. But the message of Jesus, hear me in this, is that despite all that you will give up to follow Jesus, it pales in comparison to all that you gain from him. Would you please hear me say that? Despite all that you may give up to follow Jesus, it pales in comparison to what you gain from him. Because he goes on to say, repent and do what? And believe the gospel. And can I remind you if you know this or tell you if you don't, gospel means good news. So what Jesus is saying is despite what it's going to cost you, I promise you, this is good news for you. Would you hear me? 
you struggling with same-sex attraction, you who might be broken in whatever way you're broken, would you hear Jesus say, I promise this is good news for you. This is actually going to be welcome to your ears. This is good news for you. Even though it's going to cost you, it's going to be good news. So, for example, for the man or the woman struggling or thinking or fighting or dealing with same-sex attraction, following Jesus is going to feel like giving up a sense of your very identity. Right? We live in a culture that says you are your sexuality. Would you think about that? Our definition of who you are is you are a homosexual. I am LGBT or I am straight. Our culture preaches that you are your sexuality. And and one more time, if I could quote Sam Albury, he said something wonderfully helpful. He said, in this regard, what the culture teaches is exactly the opposite of what the Bible teaches. And what the Bible teaches is exactly counter to what the culture teaches. Because what the Bible would teach is that your sexual identity comes from your body and not from your feelings. In the Bible, your body is permanent. Your feelings change. Would you hear that? In the Bible, you were born male or female. And in the Bible, even post-death, in resurrection, you will forever be male or female. It's not in the new heavens and new earth we will be this androgynous, neutered people. But that the scriptures teach us, Jesus rose male. And he's the prototype of all of our resurrection. The firstborn from the dead. What all our resurrections will look like. And so, you will be male or female for all eternity. Your body is your permanent sexual identity. Not your feelings. On the other hand, your feelings change. For example, you weren't born with sexual feelings. You spent many years of your life as a child without sexual feelings. Post-death in the new heavens and the new earth, we won't have the same sexual feelings we do. And so the Bible here is exactly counter to the message of the culture. Because the culture will preach to us, your body can be changed around, but your feelings are eternal. And the scriptures come and say, your body is your eternal identity, and your feelings can change around. And would you hear me, a culture that says you are your sexuality, though it might be immediately received as the wisdom of our day, is an incredibly exhausting and an incredibly shaky thing. It means then that your life is not worth living if you are not sexually fulfilled. Being sexually fulfilled is the highest meaning of life, and if you're not that, well then why live? And so it places all the burden and weight of your identity, reduces entirely what it means to even be a human being to whether you are sexually fulfilled. And in that way, I want you to hear this, every Christian here can relate. Whether you struggle with same-sex attraction or not, every person here can relate to building their identity on something that's temporary. Every one of us, I know perfectly well what it's like to build my life on something that if I don't have that thing, well, then why live? What's the point? Let me just read you this one quote by a a man named Revi Zacharias. He said this. He said, before I committed my life to Jesus Christ, my identity within my culture was dictated by the status of my family, who my father was, how I did in school, what my grades were, how much money I had, 
All these things were and are systematically woven into my culture. I had no choice. This is how I was viewed. Whether you're talking about same-sex attraction as your identity or any of the other number of things that everyone in this room has built their life on, we know what it's like to build our life on something shaky and temporary. Ravi Zacharias comes from the East. As an Indian, I know what it's like to build your life on, on success or, or how well you do in school or what letters come after your name or the, the promotion you get at job or how much money is in your bank account. You know what it's like to build your life on any number of shaky foundations. And friend, it's exhausting because at the end of the day, none of those things can bear the burden of the weight of your whole life and expectation. And so, Jesus says, but there's good news. I have come so that you might not work to achieve your identity. I have worked so that you might simply receive an identity. You don't have to achieve an identity anymore. You simply have to receive it. Do you know who I am now? I'm not a J. Thomas the pastor. I'm not a J. Thomas the good preacher, though so often I build my life on that shaky foundation. You know how exhausting that is? One bad sermon and I'm done. I, I, I'm not a J. Thomas, ultimately the good dad. I'm not, I am a J. Thomas, forgiven sinner and child of God, loved by Jesus Christ. And on my worst day or my best day, that's never changing. Do you know how permanent and fixed it is to root your identity on Jesus' finished work? And so Jesus is saying, I have good news for you. I have an identity for you that's better than the one that you are currently building your life on. Let me just tell you one more. For the person, the man, the woman, the, the young man, young woman who is struggling with, fighting with, dealing with same-sex attraction, following Jesus can often mean that it will give up intimacy or relationship. And that's huge. I was listening to this one man talk of how he was talking to a homosexual man. He had been in this partnership with his partner for 20-something years. And he wanted to know about Jesus. So they talked, and they talked through the Bible and the Bible's teachings on marriage and, and what marriage was getting at. And finally, this man, after hearing it all, said, Listen to me. This relationship is the best thing in my life. Why would I give that up? And that's the right question. Why on earth would I give that up? And I need you to hear that Jesus knew that that would be a real possibility. Would you hear what he says, again, because he doesn't bury anything in the fine print, what he says in Mark 10, verse 29. Some disciples are saying, Jesus, we left everything for you. What's in it for us? Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers, or sisters, or mother, or father, or children, or lands, for my sake and for the gospel. And here's his promise. Here's the good news. Who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time, in this life, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Here's what Jesus is saying. Jesus anticipates that often the most costly thing that you will have to give up to follow him are relationships. He knew that the most costly thing that you will have to give up will be relationships. And, and hear me, that's not just even for those who are same-sex attracted who are now trying to follow Jesus. We have stories, and I could tell you, of folks from other faiths and other religions who have had this same thing happen to them. 
that following Jesus meant now I have no more father, mother, brother, sisters, lands, or home. Jesus knew that there may be some relationships that you can't take with you into the Christian life, into following Jesus. But Jesus promises what? I promise that what you will gain will be a hundredfold to what you give up in this life and in the life to come. In this life, meaning I'm promising you that there is now the possibility of you gaining hundreds of relationships with new brothers and sisters and homes to be welcomed into, that there is now a new community that you really can belong to, that you really can experience intimacy and friendship and love in. And Jesus is saying, this is what my people, my family, the church is. Semmau wrote, our job is not just to point a finger at the world. Our job is to be ready, to have both the privilege and responsibility to be the family of God to any that come our way. So that Jesus, our Father, is God, Jesus, our elder brother, and we, his children, are brothers and sisters to one another. That's our privilege. That's what you and I have to commit to, is to be family, is to recognize the challenges and the loneliness that comes we're trying to walk with Jesus in the midst of this, and we're there, and we're ready. Uh, I read an account of a, a, a same-sex attracted Christian, and, and he, was, he had these relationships in his church, and he was talking about the community that God had given him, and he was moving from one place to another, and he said the most priceless gift he was given, priceless to him, broke him down, wasn't something that even costed more than a few dollars. It was a family that gave him a small box, and when he opened the box, there was a spare key to their house. And he said it communicated to him that their doors were always welcome, and he was their family anytime. That's what the church of Jesus Christ must be. We must be the fulfillment of Jesus' promise that now there are rooms to welcome you and homes, and brothers, and sisters, and older fathers, and mothers, a family for you. And this is a safe family, hear me, a safe family where you don't have to hide your brokenness, but rather a family that walks with you in it. Would you hear me on that? It must be at Seven Mile Road that it is easy and open to talk through any and every kind of brokenness, including same-sex attraction. In this way, it's wonderfully said by a pastor named Tim Keller. He said, the church must not look like the waiting room of a job interview, but rather the waiting room of a doctor's office. You get the difference? In the waiting room of a job interview, everyone is impeccably dressed. Everyone is put together. Everyone is perfect. Everyone has a resume verifying how perfect they are. Everyone is completely competent and put together. In the waiting room of a doctor's office, nobody puts on a pretense. In fact, you could literally budge, nudge the guy next to you and go, what's wrong with you? Right? Here's what's wrong with me. That's what the church of Jesus Christ is. That's what Seven Mile Road ought to be. A place where every one of your brokenness can be walked out in community with brothers and sisters and homes that are open and welcome to you. But here's the last thing I want to say. Ultimately, the intimacy that Jesus promises and the 
best gift that he has to offer you is not even these hundreds of new brothers and sisters. It's the intimacy that you now can have with Jesus himself. The greatest thing that Jesus can offer you now is a relationship with himself. Last year in November, we were at the men's retreat, and the speaker was a man whose first wife had passed away from cancer. So he had two younger daughters, he's a single dad, his wife has passed, and he spent several years in grieving, in pain, in mourning, in darkness. And then after some years, he met a, a woman, a wonderful woman, and he got engaged. And you can imagine as this single dad who's walked through this season of singleness, his every fiber of his being was looking forward to that wedding day. And he said while he was in that season, he came across this one verse from Isaiah 62. In verse 5, it says this, As the bridegroom rejoices in the bride, so your God rejoices in you. And he said in that season, he began to think, is the Bible really saying, that as every fiber of my being can't wait for July 7th, every fiber of my being can't wait to be one with this woman, so that is a drop in the Pacific Ocean compared to how God desires me, how God desires you. That as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God rejoices, desires, wants to be with you wants to be in relationship with you. I mean, and he put it in language that was graphic enough for me to get it. He said, could you imagine a God who not only just wants to be near you or around you, but in you? A God who wants to be in you. This is what the signpost of sexuality was pointing to all along. This is what every longing and desire of your heart was pointing to. A God who wants to be that close to you. And in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no more sex, we think, because there's no more marriage. But there will be a God who dwells with us, and we will be with him, and there will be no more gap. And these complementary pairs will fit together perfectly well. If you're here, and you have not yet tasted this intimacy with God, I recognize that what I have just said can sound completely absurd to you. I recognize that it can be very underwhelming. Ajay, are you telling me it's sex and the pleasure of that or Jesus? And I want you to hear, I get that. But, but let me say one last thing. C.S. Lewis was trying to explain to Christians what it would be like to, to have heaven where there is no sex and it still be good. And he was trying to explain, and he said, imagine a father who was trying to explain sexuality to his son, a little boy. And he has the talk. He gives him the birds and the bees. And imagine this little boy takes all that information in. He, he has this weird, puzzled look on his face. And, and imagine his responses. And he thinks for a moment, okay, Dad. But while they're doing that, can they have chocolate? And, and his point was, for this boy, chocolate was the most pleasurable thing he could imagine. He couldn't imagine a greater pleasure than chocolate, and he couldn't imagine something that would be good if there was no chocolate. And so his one thing was, while they're doing that, can they, can they eat chocolate? And, and, and it's almost the father having to explain to him, listen, when that happens, chocolate will be the last thing on your mind. And what the scriptures are teaching is there is a pleasure that I know you don't presently know or have a tongue for. And yet the scriptures are teaching there is a pleasure for you in Jesus Christ 
that surpasses every pleasure you could possibly imagine as the highest one. That God has for you something that you will actually need a resurrection body to fully experience. Because this body won't even be enough for all that God has for you. And so, our message to you is, there is something better than sex. There is something better than marriage. In fact, it's what sex and marriage were created for. It's to point us to Jesus. And you can have him today. Let's pray.